0: Welcome to My Morning Cup, a podcast produced by Costa Media Advisors, a strategic communications company. My Morning Cup, where we have interesting conversations with genuine people. I'm Mike Costa, your host. My guest this week is Jim Kennedy. Jim came to Chattanooga in 1974 to teach English and Drama at the Baylor School. Little did he know at that time, he would be part of nearly every organization creating positive change in Chattanooga over the last 50 years. Jim, welcome to My Morning Cup. Before we talk about your role in Chattanooga's rebirth over the last five decades, let me ask, what's in your Morning Cup?
1: Mike, My Morning Cup always consists of black coffee consumed while reading the Chattanooga Times Free Press online. So you converted to online. I did, and it was, uh, it was a long holdout. Were you? I loved the feel of the morning paper, but when we moved, uh, the paper didn't follow us for about a week, and so he said, eh, I got used to reading it on the computer.
0: Well, good. Well, welcome. We've known each other a while, and you've got such a tremendous history in Chattanooga. I want to start back at the beginning. You were born in Rochester, New York. You had dreams of being an actor.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, I did a lot of theater in high school and college as well. And there was a part of me that thought that that might be an interesting career to follow. But my older sister Mimi, who has navigated a very successful career. She's got a tremendous amount of credits to her name. Yeah, stage, TV, and film. Mimi was doing the acting thing and working her way through the ranks in New York and doing all of the struggles that go with being a struggling actor in New York, which meant that my parents... (laughs) <laughs> had to support her vision. Yeah. So anytime the conversation turned to my perhaps doing the same thing, that was pretty quickly kiboshed at the dinner table. <laughs> they kind of steered you in a
0: different direction, huh? Exactly right. And where did they steer you?
1: Well, they uh, being the youngest of four, right, mm-hmm. they didn't do much steering with me. All three of my siblings were sort of overachievers, brilliant scholarship winners. And I wasn't exactly that cut of cloth. So I really did navigate on my own more than they did, and including uh, working my way through college as an English major and really not knowing what I was going to do with that, but doing exactly what all good English majors do. I went to go teach English. (laughs) (laughs) And so that's what brought me here uh, was the fact that uh, I was looking for teaching positions, mostly in the Northeast, until my brother, who had preceded me by a year at Baylor, said there was an opening in the English department down here. But you guys were upper state New York family. Rochester. How does he first
0: end up in New York, and what attracts you down? Because I would know in our previous conversation, you got more family coming this way.
1: Well, his development was uh, migratory. He did his uh, undergraduate at Holy Cross in Massachusetts, but then did his graduate work at Chapel Hill, and it was there that he learned of Baylor, and so he, with his PhD in hand, and he could have taught anywhere, uh, he came to Baylor, fell in love with the school, fell in love with the city, and told me that I ought to look at it, and I th- thought he was out of his mind, that I would even think about coming to a place called Chattanooga, Tennessee. Yeah. When he came in, when you came, Baylor was still all boys. It was. And was it military? The military had gone out in 71, I think. Wow. Yeah. You get here, and how long do you teach at Baylor? Taught at Baylor for three years. Um, I was fully immersed in the Baylor experience. I lived on the dormitory hall. Wow! I coached. I did. Uh, ran the theater department. So there was a lot of stuff that you lived that. You know, seven days a week. And I was pretty worn out after three years and decided to do something else. What was
0: Chattanooga like at that time? Because the real transition started in the nineties and my image of the seventies is manufacturing jobs were leaving the city and it wasn't a lot of positive. So I would imagine you probably spent more time on the Baylor campus than you did in the city.
1: Absolutely. You know, as a dorm parent you seldom left the campus. If you did leave, it was probably on the weekend to go out to dinner. And then the joke then was, where do you want to go out to dinner tonight? The loft or the town and country? <laughs> oh, wait a minute. We have a couple of extra dollars, maybe the Reed House green room, Ooh. you know, so it was really limited in terms of what the city had to offer, you know, a 20 something who was interested in the social life. Yeah, not much of one. So you're at Baylor three years. It's a great experience, but it's also a grind. Well, it was, and but it was an enjoyable grind. And I don't want to in any way sound like I didn't love that work and love the school. I wound up back there right. eventually. But you know, it was also paying a teacher's salary. So um, I've also had that in mind is that I probably wanted to make a little bit more money. And how'd you
0: find your next opportunity and what was that?
1: Next opportunity came with an opportunity to enter a management training program with the Houston Coca-Cola Bottling Company. So Houston uh, as in Houston, Texas? Houston, Texas. So from <laughs> from the frying pan into the fire. Yeah. Uh, went to Houston and spent two years there. Uh, it was quite an experience. I, I found Houston to be sort of a soulless place. So how would you get back here? Well, um, Miller Reed Advertising. And advertising was something I was always sort of interested in. Well, you're a creative guy. Well, uh, and that creative outlet. So I applied for a position there. They were looking for an account executive. And I was hired to do that work and entered the agency in 1979. I became the creative director, I think, in 1983 for about six years
0: when you were at Miller Reed, what were some of the accounts that you worked
1: with? The old Lawrence Doster uh, automobile dealership. We had the Wendy's restaurants locally. We had the Loft restaurant, which at the time, there actually were three lofts. There was here, St. Louis, and Memphis. I remember the Memphis one. It was on uh, Mount Moriah. Yeah, they were divisions of Crystal. But the guys who ran the loft, a guy named Jürgen Moots. And Hamid Andalib, who everybody in Chattanooga knows, they were so adventurous in terms of how they wanted to do creative. They let us do a lot of really wonderful things in terms of radio and outdoor. and it was just a lot of fun. So we built a reputation as a you know a company that did a good job with its clients. And it was then that uh, the folks at the Lupton company, approached us and said, we would like you guys to handle the promotional work for all of our bottling plants. Explain what the Lupton Company is. Well, uh, the Lupton Company was the holding company for Jack Lupton's bottling interests. And he, at the time... What was he bottling? uh, (laughs) Coca-Cola. Okay. There you go. (laughs) And all those ancillary beverages. But um, Jack, at the time, owned Houston, Dallas, Denver, Colorado, Phoenix, and several in North Carolina, I'm sorry, interest in North Carolina, but then some North Florida uh, bottlers as well. So we had a deal with McCann Erickson, which was the national advertising firm for Coca-Cola, that we would split the commissions uh, on the ads that were placed for those bottling interests it turned out to be incredibly lucrative for Miller Reed. It turned us into the biggest agency in Tennessee in terms of billings. And it was so much fun to be able to do that kind of advertising in those markets.
0: So in coming from being an English major with interest in drama, all of a sudden you're in mad men territory, (laughs) you know, yeah. what's that like?
1: Well, um, as the creative director, you know, you go along and you have the license to be a little off the wall in meetings because yeah. you're, you're the creative guy, creative guy right and uh, the client was looked to the, <laughs> to the account executive <laughs> and say what is this guy doing <laughs> but you know that sort of license to to float ideas it was just really interesting and expanding and i'm
0: sure it fed that creative need no
1: question from a
0: relationship and networking standpoint how important was that phase of your life in meeting
1: people Extremely so. Back in the day, I honestly don't know if the Chattanooga Ad Federation is still active and doing a lot of things, but it was a very active organization back then and a lot of opportunity to meet a lot of different people. But yeah, that phase of my life was really good. The bottom came out a little bit when Jack Lupton announced one day that he was going to sell his bottling plants. Yeah. So we lost overnight that tremendous chunk of business and downsized from an agency that at one point had 70 some odd employees in six different cities to about 20 people in Chattanooga. So
0: that's probably what 75% of the agency's building, I would imagine. yeah, Yeah. Yeah.
1: So it was at that point that, you know, sort of another crossroads. Did I want to go back and fight that fight again to rebuild the agency or look for another opportunity. And that opportunity showed up in the form of the River City Company.
0: Yeah, talk a little bit about that because River City's had an integral part in the changes in downtown. But when did it come into existence in terms of the River City Company and its involvement with downtown? Because if I'm not mistaken, it was a novel approach to develop in downtown. Not everyone had a development company like
1: that. Right. I often say, if asked, why did Chattanooga achieve what it did? And I say one of the reasons was that they created the River City Company because we had created the um, Tennessee River Park Master Plan. It was a great community effort. Everybody came, had input to it. What year was that? That was uh, 85, I believe, the plan was published. And then in 86, River City was created, and they were given the task of waking up every morning and putting that plan into practice and to create the vision, to bring the vision to life that the community had created. And more importantly, they weren't just told to do that. The original board and, along with the help of the city and the county, capitalized the River City Company so they could go begin to assemble land to make the river walk happen, for example, and to put the land together at Ross's Landing so you could build the aquarium. Let me step back and ask a question about
0: before the formation of River City Company, what was the driving impetus behind the plan? Was it a citizen outreach, or what drove the
1: purpose of, we got to do something? Yeah, that goes back to the creation of Chattanooga Venture, and that was in the early 80s. It came about as a result of a chamber organized visit to Indianapolis. You know, the chamber at the time was taking, you know, community leaders to different cities to say, you know, what sort of what are they ideas doing right? can we poach yeah, yeah. to bring back here? And one of the things that Indianapolis had done was to create a storefront where people could come in and say, this is what I would like to see happen here in my town. Mm -hmm. And their promise was, if you come in and give us an idea, it's going on the wall, and we're going to make sure that somebody gives it some time and, and looks at it. We came back and used that idea to create Chattanooga Venture. And Venture then rolled out the Vision 2000 process. That was this huge public conversation, and they exported it. You didn't have to come to Chattanooga Venture. We took it, not we, I was not part of it at the time, but it went out to garden clubs and to church groups and they would hold meetings with any group that wanted to talk about the future of the city. And that led to the creation of the commitment portfolio, 44 ideas that we said we wanted to see that would transform the city. And from that was the creation of the River City Company to help do that.
0: And I'm glad you're touching on that because I think of where we are today. A lot of people really don't understand all that planning that went into, you know, the vision 2000, you know, here you are in the eighties talking about vision 2000 and mm-hmm. we're still reaping the benefits of it today.
1: Yeah. Well, one of the things, um, and I, I won't get the dates right on this, but it was, I guess, five or six years after vision 2000, we created revision 2000 to say, all right, what have we done? What's undone? What do we want to alter, you know, at this point in the road? And something like 41 of the 44 uh, items in the commitment portfolio had been addressed. That's pretty impressive. Yeah, but it, it really did go to show a couple of things. One, that you can really get a lot of community buy-in and a lot of energy behind a plan that comes from the community rather than you know some planning agency saying, this is what we're going to do and you're going to like it or not.
0: So it was more of a bottom-up than a top-down Process of first get the buy-in from everyone, and, and it'll happen.
1: It became known as uh, I think it was Bill Stacy, who when he was chancellor at UTC, who called it the Chattanooga way. That you know we don't just hatch ideas; we let them percolate from the community. We get people around the table, and we have these really robust conversations. And the Chattanooga Way carried on for a a long time. I mean, you had that sort of public participation uh, process around public art. You had it around parks. Corker did it with the 21st Century Waterfront. And it really, I think, uh, is sort of a trademark of Chattanooga and how we got to where we are.
0: You hear that quite a bit. It's the Chattanooga Way. And I'm glad you defined it because it's been a process. And I think it gets lost so after
1: um, River City Company, you're there how long? I uh, was there for three years. And then you move on to? The Chattanooga Area Convention and Visitors Bureau. We were getting ready to open the aquarium. And uh, it was, I think, February of 92 that I went over to uh, the CVB. And the idea really was that here we were getting ready to open this world class attraction. What else were we doing? <laughs> Yeah. And did we have everybody around the table buying into this? Cuz remember if you you know for people who were here at the time there was an interesting pushback against the aquarium in some corners. There were local attractions that said this is not going to be good. You're going to suck all of the business away from us and we're all going to close because you're going to open this really cool thing on the river and we kept saying, no 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 this is the tide that is going to lift all the boats and everybody's going to benefit from that. And so we spent a lot of time early on uh, in those early years of the aquarium bringing people to the table and convincing them that it was going to be a whole lot better if we all got in the boat and rowed together than if we went our separate ways. And I always like to give credit to a guy named Jim Heckers, who was the first marketing manager, uh, director for the aquarium. He showed up in my office one day and he said, I want to take the aquarium's advertising dollars and put them into a joint marketing program. Oh, wow. And of course, that got everybody else to say, oh, yeah, if they're in, I'm in. And so we were able to create a cooperative marketing program that really made a difference in particularly in Media Buys in Atlanta.
0: I was in television in Memphis when the aquarium opened. And one of the things I remember about it is for the first three to five years, the aquarium would do satellite tours where – Local television stations from Memphis would send their satellite truck over, yeah. and do the morning show from the aquarium.
1: Yeah, I do remember standing on the uh, Walnut Street Bridge one morning, yeah, for an hour, and the satellite truck was there, and they'd say, "All right, uh, next we're with WKYZ <laughs> in you know and you do the Same spiel, just different call. <laughs> so, yeah, saw. with different uh, different morning team. Yeah,
0: but it really introduced the aquarium as Tennessee's aquarium, and. You know, being on the west side of the state as I was, the first thing everyone says, an aquarium in Chattanooga, they don't even have any water. You know, because the thought is aquariums are saltwater. And if I'm not mistaken, the Tennessee Aquarium was the first to really trace the journey of the river from the mountains down.
1: Yeah, it was billed at the time as the world's largest freshwater aquarium, and it may still be. And there were people who said, that is the craziest idea. Nobody is going to come and look through the glass at a trout. (laughs) (laughs) You know, they want to see a shark or an octopus or whatever. And what we had done some research on, and at the time there was such a a sport fishing community here, probably still is, they had done the numbers on how many sport fishermen there were within, you know, like 200 miles of Chattanooga. They said, all those guys are going to come here. They're going to want to see what the trout is doing underwater. They're going to want to see what the crappie is doing. And so, um, yeah, my favorite number on the aquarium was the projected attendance in year one was 650,000 people. It was 1.2 million by the time it was
0: over. That's got to make you feel good. And that's proved to be such an anchor.
1: Yeah.
0: You're at the Convention Visitors Bureau for how long?
1: I was there for six years. And what's after that? Uh, The Chamber of Commerce. John Kinsey uh, had become mayor, and he asked me if I would be interested in going to the chamber to help oversee the transition of economic development from what was then called River Valley Partners back to the chamber. Because there was a growing sense that if Chattanooga was going to do what it needed to do in economic development, you really had to have the chamber as the place where that happened. So I went to the chamber, spent three years there, got that transition done. At that time, there
0: was a lot of different hands in economic development, if I'm not mistaken.
1: Well, again, it was River Valley Partners was an outgrowth of the River City Company. And Bill Sutterth and Chris Crimmins, who had been so incredibly successful with downtown redevelopment at River City... They were approached, I think it was either Dalton Roberts or Claude Ramsey at the time, but said, you've done such a good job with that. We want you to do the county. So Bill and Chris took that on and that grew uh, into a larger group. But again, there was a sense that they wanted to have economic development back at the chamber. You just said
0: something, and I think it's an important note. They said You did such a good job with that. We want you to do this. Mm -hmm. In talking to people who have had successful careers, as I told you earlier, not many people started out with, I'm going to be this and do this, that you take your opportunity and you do the best job you can. Doors open. Right. And I think your career is a good example of that.
1: Yeah. I've been so lucky to be with organizations where you do meet people, you do network with people. You do cooperative programs with people so that if an opportunity opens up, somebody can come to you and say, "Eh, you might be good at this. Would you come help us?
0: And how important is that to you? Because I think there's also a sense of some people look at it as I'm going to keep my cards pretty close to my chest and make sure that really I'm not giving
1: away too much. It seems the more collaborative, the more opportunities. Well, I just think Chattanooga is one of the most collaborative places I can imagine. I mean, I haven't been a whole lot of other places. I've had a lot of communities that came to visit us um, during those years after the opening of the aquarium, and they all shook their heads and say, how do you guys do it here? How do you get these people, all of these disparate organizations, to sit around the table and cooperate? This is just amazing. So I do think there's something in the DNA of this community, and it may not be historical going back to 18-whatever. But it probably started with that work in the mid-80s when we said, we can do a whole lot more together than we can. And
0: that's kind of the tale of two Chattanoogas. There's a pre-80s industrial Chattanooga, and then there's the rebirth, the history of a renaissance. Yep. One of the other things you brought up is how cities are different. I grew up in West Tennessee and Memphis. And when I moved here, and I met you about 2000. what I took away from what I was getting out of Chattanooga, comparing it to Memphis, both cities have great ideas. There's no shortage of ideas in any city. The difference is they got done here. In a Memphis or any other city where they don't get done, they seem to argue over them for two, three, four years. And then there's a consensus, well, we're going to do something. And it's about half the idea that it was. So if the aquarium had been built in another city, it may not have been the world's largest freshwater aquarium. It may have been a, "Eh, it's a pretty nice fish tank.
1: Or it might not have gotten built. Exactly. You know, leaping ahead to my work at uh, Kennedy Coulter, Rushing & Watson, when we created a, a private consulting firm to help communities with planning, we did work in Memphis and in Knoxville. And one of the programs I remember was the work that we did with the Knoxville Riverfront. Great community process and a great plan. Nothing really came of it because they just didn't have the leadership to go raise the money to make that happen.
0: You know, Knoxville and I think Nashville are great examples of that. Here we are, three cities with rivers running through their downtown. I've spent a lot of time in Knoxville being a Tennessee grad. And the riverfront's great if you're pulling your boat up and going to a football game. Nashville, it amazes me, they don't do more with that riverfront right there, particularly with the way Lower Broadway is. And I think to your point, there's no impetus of someone saying, cut the crap.
1: We're going to get this done. Mm -hmm. And Chattanooga, you also have to remember that this community has been blessed with philanthropic money, that uh, Jack Lupton was incredibly gracious in saying, if the community wants to build an aquarium, I'll help make that happen. And then his foundation, the Lindhurst Foundation, not only back then, but to the current day, still doing things to help these visions come true. So, you know, not every community has those types of pockets, No, uh, but I do think every community has at least one pocket. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> they just have to figure out how to get into it.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, So through this process, your involvement is with these organizations that are really pushing Chattanooga to be better than it is. In that process, how much of that was your desire to be part of this special thing happening and career-focused? I guess what I'm asking is where do you separate the two of personal ambition and hey, this is good for the community. I like being part of this.
1: Yeah. None of it for me was career ambition because I, as a, you know, a, Guy in the advertising business, I never said to myself, "You know where I want to be someday. I want to be the head of the Chamber of Commerce." I, I you know, that was never it just in of your it. mind, yeah. But it was an unfolding of opportunity as the community development unfolded, to do different things along the way, and it was again, I, you know, I sometimes shake my head that uh, I was blessed enough to be part of all of that, but it wasn't by design, to be sure.
0: Yeah. <laughs> So you've been through all this, and you come back full circle, and you go back to the Baylor School.
1: Yeah. Um, It followed uh, 10 years of doing a private enterprise. Uh, Started out as Kennedy and Associates and then joined forces with Ann Coulter, who had run for mayor and was looking for something to do. And she had
0: been at River City Cup.
1: She had, indeed. She and Ken Hayes uh, were sort of the driving forces in making Corker's 21st century riverfront plan get done. But Christian Rushing, who um, died much too early, but was a genius when it came to urban planning and Stroud Watson, of course, the venerable Stroud Watson, we had a great run as a private consulting firm. But we all decided after about, uh, I had been at it for 10 years, they had been partners with me for about six, we decided we wanted to go back to doing something else, and um, Baylor School called, and back I went to work in the admission department.
0: Well, I'm glad you took time to talk about your partners because they were all integral folks in this whole process too.
1: Yeah, I mean, Stroud Watson was often referred to as the community's design conscience as we were going through uh, the redevelopment of downtown. When the aquarium opened, Bill Sutterth will tell you, because Bill was the president of the River City Company, that we could have had within six months every fast food franchise in America within two blocks of the aquarium. Everybody wanted down there. But Stroud and Bill said, no, we're going to create a very special place at the riverfront. And I think the commitment to that quality is one of the reasons that we picked up the momentum to create the excellence that you see not just now at the riverfront, but all the way through downtown now.
0: Yeah, and that's similar to the uh, volunteer ammunition site when we were trying to sell it all as one piece and people were going to Claude Ramsey saying, divide this thing up and we'll get it done. Yeah. That belief that if you kept it together, brought in Volkswagen. And the belief that if you kept it special downtown, made it special.
1: Well, in the interest of true confessions, I was one of those people (laughs) who went to Claude Ramsey and said, come on, man, let's (laughs) let's get some people out there. (laughs) Well, you know what? (laughs) It all worked out.
0: It did indeed. It It all absolutely worked out. So over this course, you've had a tremendous career, Jim. You go back and you finish your career at Baylor School. Yeah. How important was that?
1: Well, it was, um, I've always loved Baylor. Baylor has been part of our family since my brother came here in 73. My wife, Barbara, works there. She's been there for 20 plus years. All three of our boys graduated from Baylor and went on. And as you said, it was full circle for me. It was my first job out of college. And so being able to go back there in an admission capacity, to be able to um, to sell the school to prospective students, that was very exciting for me. And that was a great nine-year run. I had a very active international recruitment effort. And for seven years, I would fly over to China and spend nine days there. Really? Uh, yeah, recruiting Chinese kids to come to I Baylor. never knew that. Yeah, yeah. I don't think you could do that now with the same sort of goodwill that you could back then, but it was really wonderful. And the Chinese people were so gracious, you know, when I went over there.
0: Well, and that's the thing about travel that gets lost is when you get in someone's community, everyone's the same.
1: Everyone wants the same thing. They want the
0: best for their kids and their family
1: and that's it. And those kids, I mean, the Chinese kids who came and we were able to admit typically about 10 a year out of a pool that would sometimes be as many as 120 applicants. They loved Baylor.
0: Yeah. A couple more questions for you. Sure. You have a very unique position. You had a seat at the table through a lot of this that Chattanooga has done and a lot of accolades that has come its way. Your opinion, what was the most integral thing that happened, most important thing that happened in the course of your career that you can point to and say, you know what, if it wasn't that,
1: we'd still be struggling. Well, I think I may have said this. I point to the creation of River City, that we had created this incredibly dynamic plan. The Moccasin Bend Task Force resulted in the Tennessee River Park Master Plan. A lot of communities can do that. They can create a good plan. But then being able to make it come true, when we created River City and said to them, you're responsible for doing this. You have to wake up every morning and make sure this river walk happens, make sure this development at Ross's Landing happens. That's your job. And here's some money to go do it. That, I think, is what primed the pump for the development that we see today. Obviously, there were a lot of other great things. I mean, hats off to Claude Ramsey, who said, let's hold out for the major <laughs> development at Volunteer. Yeah. And we got Volkswagen. And, you know, we spoke earlier about the eras of Chattanooga. Mm-hmm. There was a manufacturing era, and then there wasn't. And now we're, now there is. You know, we've come full circle in that regard as well. Well, it's been a unique ride. You are, in a great sense, Chattanooga's historian, because you were there for it. Well, I am an old dog around the barn. Well, that was just my <laughs>
0: nice way of putting it. <laughs> yeah, thank you very much.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's just been—it was a privilege, that's all you can say, to have been— lucky enough to participate from a number of different chairs along the way in that Renaissance. I don't take any credit for it, but I do love the fact that I was able to participate in it. Last question
0: for you. Think about this a second. What would you tell your 25 year old self is really important for a happy life?
1: Well, there's the old cliche that says, you love what you do and you'll never work a day in your life. Um, I'd, do think my 25-year-old self, as he walked away from Baylor School, thought that making money was key, that that was the road to happiness. That defined success? Yeah. And um, while I'm comfortable here in my retirement, we've never made a whole lot of money, but I've always, for the most part, loved what I was doing every day. And so I would tell my 25-year-old self, keep going, do the things that you... Love, go through those open doors when they appear.
0: And that's such good advice because when we are at that age, and part of it's our society of defining success by how much money you make. And you get to our age, you realize there are things you missed out in pursuit of the dollar, and you'd rather have those moments in that time back.
1: No question about it. And, you know, again, I look at our kids, and they're all well launched. For now, and all appear to be very happy in what they're doing. So that makes a parent happy and fulfilled.
0: You look happy and I'm very happy. I met you when I did. And thanks so much for coming on My Morning Cup.
1: It was a great pleasure. Thanks.
0: Thanks for listening to My Morning Cup, a podcast by Costa Media Advisors. If you like this episode, please share it with a friend. I release a new episode each week, so be sure to subscribe on Spotify, Apple, Google, or wherever you listen to podcasts.